Chapter 13, Part 4 of History of the Christian Church During the First Six Centuries. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording by Anna Roberts. History of the Christian Church During the First Six Centuries by S. Cheatham. Chapter 13, Part 4 Ecclesiastical Ceremonies and Art. 3. It was natural that when Christians became numerous and services splendid, churches should become more spacious and dignified. So Eusebius tells us that when the church had rest, Christian temples rose, much more lofty and magnificent than those which had been destroyed, so that in every city there were consecrations of newly built houses of prayer. 1. The churches of the period from Constantine to Justinian are for the most part either of the basilican or the domed type. The Christian basilica, which in its general traits strongly resembles the secular buildings of the same name, which were used as tribunals and market-houses, was an oblong hall divided by rows of columns into a central space and two, or, occasionally, four side-aisles. Above the columns rose a wall pierced with windows which admitted a flood of light into the interior. The roof was in some cases open, so as to show the timbers of the construction, in others concealed by a ceiling often richly decorated. The entrance was generally from the west. At the other end the central nave terminated in an apse, round the wall of which were the seats of the bishop and the other clergy, while the holy table or altar, in primitive times of wood, but from the middle of the fourth century usually of stone, stood nearly in the centre of the semicircle. From a canopy above it was frequently suspended a dove of precious metal in which the Eucharist was reserved. It was probably not customary before the end of the sixth century to place more than one altar in a church. Immediately in front of the bema was frequently a raised platform for the choir, at the corners of which were desks or ambones for the readers. At one of these desks the preacher sometimes stood, but a bishop seems always to have preached from his cathedra in the bema itself. In most churches the colonnade stretched in an unbroken line to the wall beside the apse, but in the grander churches, such as the old St. Peter's at Rome, they did not reach the apse, but came to an end at a point considerably short of it, where a lofty arch, the triumphal arch, was thrown over the nave. This left a free space in front of the apse, which was sometimes prolonged beyond the lateral walls of the church so as to form a transept. The floor of the apse, or bema, was always raised above that of the nave, and was approached by a broad flight of steps. It was separated from the nave by a screen or railing. Beneath the altar was frequently an excavation or vault, called confessio, to receive the relics of some saint. Before the principal entrance was a forecourt, generally surrounded by cloisters, in the midst of which was the basin at which the faithful performed ceremonial ablutions before entering the church. That portion of the cloister which ran along the wall of the church formed an antechurch to which persons were admitted who were not in full communion. Where there was no such portico, a space was marked off for non-communicants within the church itself, at the end furthest from the altar and nearest the entrance. In oriental churches, galleries for the women were sometimes placed over the side-aisles. From an early date, certainly as early as the beginning of the fourth century, churches were solemnly dedicated and set apart from profane uses. The precinct of a church was generally surrounded with a wall, which also enclosed subsidiary buildings, especially one destined for the administration of holy baptism, and called a baptistry, containing a bath in which adults might be immersed. When it became usual to baptize infants, a font, generally of stone, was placed in the church itself. Even to this day the Gothic churches of the West bear manifest traces of their derivation from the ancient basilica. The other form adopted by the early builders of churches was the dome. 
This was probably suggested by the circular or polygonal domed buildings, such as the tombs of Cecilia Metella and of Hadrian at Rome, placed over the remains of famous persons. Christians built similar structures over the graves of martyrs, and used them for worship. Such was probably the lofty octagonal church built by Constantine in the year 327 at Antioch. The famous Dome of the Rock at Jerusalem may possibly be of the same age. To Constantine is also to be attributed the circular domed church of St. Costanza at Rome, by some considered a baptistry. But all ancient domed edifices yield in splendor to the magnificent edifice dedicated to St. Sophia at Constantinople, in which nave and apse are combined with the dome. In this church the capabilities of the domed style became apparent, and it spread accordingly throughout the Eastern Empire. In Italy there is a most striking example of it in the church of St. Vitalis at Ravenna, nearly contemporary with St. Sophia. 2. The Council of Elvira in the beginning of the 4th century probably expressed a feeling very general in the church when it resolved that it was not fitting to introduce pictures into churches, lest the objects of worship should be portrayed on the walls. Eusebius blamed the painters of pictures of St. Peter, St. Paul, and the Lord himself, such as he had himself seen, as having unwarily followed pagan examples, and when the emperor's sister, Constantia, begged him to send her a picture of the Saviour, he replied with some asperity that he had no such thing, and that he had himself taken away two pictures of pagan philosophers, which some woman vaunted as portraits of our Lord and St. Peter, lest the heathen should suppose that Christians had become idolaters. At a later date, Epiphanius, seeing a curtain in a village church at Palestine, adorned with a representation of Christ, or of some saint, tore it down, and Asterius of Amasea begged that no painting should be made of that human form which Christ once bore for us. Notwithstanding this, however, during the fourth and subsequent centuries, the walls of churches came to be covered with representations of sacred persons and scenes. Gregory of Nyssa describes the painting of a martyrdom in a church dedicated to a martyr, and Paulinus of Nola contends that the pictures in the church which he himself built attracted and instructed the country folk who entered it. Nilus, a famous ascetic contemporary with Augustine, replying to a friend who was about to build and decorate a church, says that a man of masculine and vigorous mind would be content to place at the east end of his church one single cross as the emblem of our salvation, but he would not object to place on the side walls representations of scenes from the Old and New Testament, from the hand of the best painter attainable, as the books of the unlettered. Pictures for the decoration of churches were almost always executed in mosaic work. They were produced, that is, by arranging small cubes or tesserae of different colors in the required forms. These tesserae were at first cut from various colored marbles, hard stones, or earthenware, but when the art was discovered of making colored tesserae of vitreous paste, scarcely any other material was used in church mosaics. Pictures so formed were almost indestructible, except by direct violence, and if the material was incapable of producing flowing lines, subtle gradations of color, and the expression of lively feeling, it was not ill-adapted to portray a certain majestic calm and exaltation above the world. Mosaics dating from the time of Constantine onwards are found at Rome, at Thessalonica, at Ravenna, and elsewhere, the earliest having the gay and festive character of pagan art. In the most ancient mosaics, the position of chief dignity, the center of the conch of the apse, was always occupied by Christ, either standing or enthroned, supported on either hand by the apostles, St. Peter and St. Paul, standing next him, together with the patron saints and founders of the church. Subsequently the place of our Lord was usurped by the patron saint, as at St. Agnes at Rome, or by the Blessed Virgin holding the divine child in her lap, 
as at Parenzo and St. Mary in Dominica. A hand holding a crown is usually seen issuing from the clouds above the chief figure, a symbol of the supreme being. The river Jordan flows at the feet of Christ, separating the church triumphant above from the church militant below. In a zone below we usually find in the center the holy lamb, the head surrounded by a cruciform nimbus, standing on a mount from which gush the four rivers of paradise, symbolizing the four evangelists. Trees, usually palm trees laden with fruit, typify the tree of life, while the phoenix with its radiant plumage symbolizes the soul of the Christian, passing through death to a new and glorified life. On either side six sheep, types of the apostles, and through them of believers in general, issue from the gates of the two holy cities, Jerusalem and Bethlehem. On the western face of the great arch of the apse, or the arch of triumph, we see at the apex a medallion bust of Christ, or the Holy Lamb, or, which is very frequent, the book with seven seals elevated on a jeweled throne. On either side are ranged angels, the evangelistic symbols, and the seven golden candlesticks, in a horizontal band, the spandrels below containing the twenty-four white-robed elders of the Apocalypse, offering their crowns, with arms outstretched in adoration to the Lamb. In the larger basilicas, where a transept separates the nave from the apse, a second transverse arch is introduced, the face of which is also adorned with subjects taken from the Apocalypse. At Ravenna, however, in the church of St. Vitalis, not only are sacred scenes and symbols depicted, but also Justinian with his attendants and Theodora with her ladies, making their costly offerings at the dedication of the church. The church of St. Sophia at Constantinople is decorated with magnificent mosaics, which show that, in Byzantium itself, the stiffening influence of Byzantine pictorial traditions had hardly begun to operate in the sixth century. 3. Not only architecture and mosaic were enlisted in the service of the church, sculpture also came to be applied to Christian uses. The only examples which remain to us of early Christian statues are the marble statuettes of the Good Shepherd in the Lateran Museum, and the bronze figure of St. Peter in the great church at Rome, which bears his name, and the marble statue of Hippolytus, also in the Lateran Museum. Both the statue of St. Peter, however, and those of the Good Shepherd, have been thought to be of pagan origin. But we have abundant remains of early Christian bas-reliefs in the decoration of sarcophagi, which seem to have been set in places where they were open to view. The work of pagan artists was in early days sometimes used to receive the bodies of Christians, and when Christian sculptors were employed they adapted the style of their pagan predecessors to the treatment of Christian subjects. Nowhere is the rapid decline of art more recognizable than in the sarcophagi. The compositions are crowded and ill-balanced, the figures are usually ill-drawn, with short thick bodies, large heads, stiff draperies, and a general absence of dignity and grace. They are rather architectural and pictorial than sculptural or statuesque. They represent scenes from the Bible, Christ and the Apostles, the raising of Lazarus, the story of Jonah, the miracle of the loaves, the healing of the blind, Moses striking the rock, Daniel in the lion's den, and the like. One of the oldest and most beautiful sarcophagi is that of the prefect Junius Bassus, died 359. The finest, perhaps, of those found in Rome is that of Petronius Probus, died 395, in the subterranean church of St. Peter. Christian sarcophagi have also been found at Arles and at Treves. In the sculptures at Ravenna the biblical cycle of illustration is less prominent than elsewhere, but they are richer in decorative work. The cross, the vine, the monogram of Christ, doves and peacocks are frequently repeated around single figures of the Lord and his apostles. Representations of faithful servants of Christ, working or dying in the service of their Lord, so long as they were fitting and reverent, would seem not only innocent but profitable. 
but, in some cases at least, they came to be regarded with superstitious reverence, and the tendency to give them undue honor was no doubt increased by the belief that sacred pictures had wrought miracles. Augustine was far from being hostile to paintings in churches, but he bewails the use which was often made of them, and begs that the Catholic Church may not be blamed for the folly of some of her children, who worship tombs and pictures, a folly which she herself condemned. Christ and his apostles were to be sought in the sacred books, not on painted walls. Towards the end of the sixth century, Leontius, bishop of Neapolis in Cyprus, discussed the question of the respect paid by Christians to images, with a view to rebut the charges of the Jews. The obeisance, or genuflection, proskinesis, made by Christians before images was no act of worship, but a symbol of respect, and it was not paid to the mere material image, but to that which the image represents. In the same way Christians reverence the holy places, not as divine in themselves, but as memorials of Christ. Everything depends on the intention of an act of reverence. Thus the respect paid by Christians to pictures came to be defended by the same arguments which had been used a few generations earlier by the pleaders for pagan idolatry. End of chapter 13, part 4